It's episode 134 of the Improv London podcast. I'm your host, Stuart Moses, and this week's guest is Caitlin Campbell. Hello, how are you? I'm all right, thanks. Oh, sorry. Oh, sorry, we just kicked each other. Great start. (laughs) No, you'd have thought by episode 134, I would have uh, been able to start a podcast without kicking any of the guests. Um, How are you? I'm good, thanks. I went out dancing last night, so I'm slightly tired. Well, that's what Friday nights are for, I think. We had a big show, which you were at, International Women's Day, with a big all-female lineup, which was fantastic, and um, had a great visiting act, and we took them to a gay bar afterwards and <laughs> stayed up really late, so. Yeah, it was, a, it was a really, really fun show. So we are, we should say, we are in the Bristol Improv Theatre. I'm very excited to be here. I've not been here before. It's very nice. Well Thank done. Thank you very much. Tell the world. <laughs> I endorse it. <laughs> um, yeah, so we uh, had a fun show last night. Um, the first act was A Bit of Wit. Yes. So this was a troupe that was formed for the International Women's Day show. So two months ago, we just put a call out over Facebook and other channels saying, if you're a woman or a non-binary person and you want to try improv or you've done improv and you want to try short form, then just sign up and you can do a show for International Women's Day. It was coached by um, wonderful Michelle McMorrow-Graham from the Short and Girly Troupe. Oh, right, yeah. Um, and she, so she took them through eight weeks of short form and then they did their first show last night and it was just wonderful. It was really delightful. Yeah. Um, it was an excellent choice of games um, and it was also just really fun seeing people who had that um, sort of youth, sort of improv youth. Yeah, yeah, totally. Um, and, and that enthusiasm, so that was very delightful. Uh, and then there was a group called uh, Friends Like These. Yeah, they're great, aren't they? They were great. <laughs> they were great. Uh, dressed in pyjamas. The most comfortable... Of um, clothing. Of, of improv wear, yeah. So that's um, a group... Uh, so that's a show by the Delight Collective, which um, is run by my good friend Imogen Palmer. And so she subs us in to uh, do these wonderful three-person shows where we wear our pyjamas and do scenes based on audience stories of friendship. Yes. That was absolutely lovely. Um, and then Maria Peters and Rian and Vivian. Rhea and Ray. Oh, my God, they were so good. Yes, they are fantastic. Um, I particularly... Like and it's not, they're not the only people who do that. But I love it when people, um, when improvisers end up playing the same character, or so there'll have been a character standing in one part of the stage who'll be played by Maria, for example, and then Rhiannon will come along and then play that character oh, later yeah. on. Love all that. That's fantastic. Cool. So, tell me about the Bristol Improv Theatre. Tell me how it started in lots and lots of detail. Oh my goodness, okay. Uh, it started as a festival. It started as a festival in 2013 was the first one. And the festival started because uh, two improvisers had an argument in a bar about flyering. So Really? Yeah, so uh, one, one person, Andy O, wanted to fly and someone told him, look, you can't fly here for a show on a different night at a different venue because it was seen as competition. Right. And after a couple of pints, and a robust discussion which became very friendly and amenable. Uh, it was agreed that actually a rising tide raises all boats and there are so there were at the time were so few improv groups in Bristol that to fight over audiences and space seemed ridiculous. And then this conversation yes anded itself into organizing the Bristol Improv Festival which was in 2013. Um, and the original idea was that um, we'd just get all the groups together, there are about five at the time, doing improv in Bristol, and would uh, publicise our shows on different nights of the week with one flyer. And that was all it was going to be. And then that became double billing with visiting act, booking out a venue for a whole week, having a big theatre throw down at the end of the week where we had even more visiting troops. It just became this huge thing. And off the back of that, um, we started a theatre school. And at this time, the uh, the whole thing was all run almost exclusively by Andy Yeo, who's one of the founders of the theatre. And so that's how it went for about three years. We had festivals and talk classes and uh, just put on shows in different venues around Bristol. And then in 2014, our group, Degrees of Error Theatre Company, were looking for a space to perform our show Murder, Didn't Write, uh, to do some Edinburgh previews. And we were finding it really challenging in Bristol because there are, there, at the time there were lots of small studio theatres with sort of 40 to 50 seats, 
there were the larger commercial theatres like the Bristol Vic and Tobacco Factory where we couldn't get a gig because we weren't good enough or big enough. Mm. And then there were the comedy spaces, which were rooms above pubs. And we'd almost exclusively been putting shows on in these spaces. But the show that we were working on, Murder She Didn't Write, this improvised murder mystery, was a lot more theatrical than stuff we'd done in the past. So doing short form in the corner of a room at a pub is great and fun and everyone has a good time. Uh, but doing a show where you want to bring set and costumes and create a world and you know immerse everyone in it is much harder. And we'd got to this stage where we were taking our own costumes and our own lights so like setting up uh you know two sets of four parkans on top of like stands with remote control lights and, and wiring a whole space and moving around venues to try and make them look more like theatres and we just really needed somewhere that was felt a bit more like a theatre hmm. and Andy wandered past this building that um we're in now and that I'd walk past every day on my way to university um, that was an Anglo-Polish society, Polish Ex-Servants Club, uh, which is four floors, a four-floor building with two flats, um, two classroom spaces, and downstairs, a hundred-seat theatre uh, and a fully licensed bar. And it was a Friday night, and the place was completely empty. And he got chatting to the manager and said, this space is amazing. I mean, yeah. it was really odd. It was very much a working men's club. <laughs> For some reason, there was a photography exhibition of not wildlife photo but animal husbandry photos so there were photos of pigs and cows on the wall <laughs> for some reason the whole place was painted white and blue uh you know with those old benches that you get in working men's clubs it was a really odd space but this you know beautiful community hall vibe with this wonderful parquet flooring and and the manager was the place used to be a really um great live music venue right. uh, about 10 years previously and if you speak to people in Bristol a lot of them will have really great memories of seeing bands at the Polish Sex Servants Club but in more recent years that had stopped the manager was getting older and was less interested in putting on those kind of events and the area around the theatre had got more upmarket and they'd uh, had more noise complaints and it had to step down the programming uh, interesting and so we said can we come and put nights on here and he was like yeah and charged us you know a tiny amount which is just still beyond imagining how lucky we were um and we said can we put a banner up and you know call it the bristol improv theater when we do shows here because we'd already had this idea that we wanted a theater for a couple of years and he said yeah yeah, yeah sure i don't care and then we said could we put it on google maps as the bristol improv theater and he was like what's google maps <laughs> so over two years we were running shows here once or twice a week and they let us use the space downstairs as, a, as an office space. And the general feeling, which is just so generous, was that the space wasn't being used. Mm. So if we wanted to use it, it, it was ours. Wow. Obviously, we paid for it, yeah, but yeah. you know, we, we were just unimaginably lucky in the amount of um, time we got to, be, to bed into this space and learn about it and learn what worked and what didn't. And then after a couple of years, the, the society contacted us and said that um, across the country they were closing Polish ex-servicemen's clubs because the community had changed and the landscape had changed and uh, what was deemed to be a better um, sort of legacy for Polish communities was to have a cash fund rather than a building. Right. Buildings weren't getting used. And they said, but you are the community that's using the building. We want it to stay a community building. Can you take over the running of the building? And we went away and did our maths and spoke to investors and stuff and, and now we do run the wow. building and we have been for two years. So that is how it became ours. That's, That's how amazing. we've got our thing. But it all happened um, probably much faster than it was really sensible and we were ready for. And we've, as I think everyone is, just totally learning how to do it as we go along. Yeah. So, yeah, uh, just a set of incredibly lucky coincidences and lots of hard work. And now we're here. Yes, it's amazing. So what sort of challenges have you faced along the way? I think, I think when we first opened... There were four of us running the entire space. And we took over the flats as well as the classroom and office spaces and the theatre. And we were so ambitious. We knew exactly what it, we wanted it to look like. And the first lesson we had to learn was just patience. It takes so much time <laughs> to get things to where you want them to be. And they're still obviously not. And I think... Part of the reason we'd all started doing this and wanted to do it was because we wanted to do more improv and put on more improv. 
And it's been two years that we've been running the building now. We now have a staff of 11 people, wow. if you include bar staff. Um, and that's not including all the volunteers that work with us, you know, doing photography and, and box office for events and stuff like that. Um, we're only just now getting to the stage where we have the freedom to do some of the stuff that we want to do. And we've all had to learn completely different jobs. You know, we all do things that have nothing to do with improv now. Yeah. Because the freedom of, you know... Um, there's the stability of having different income streams. So we have two flats above the theatre that we run as Airbnb and we have some permanent tenants as well. Wow. Um, yeah, we have this space that, that we're in now, it's classroom space, we have the office next door and that gets hired out to external companies as rehearsal spaces and various stuff like that. We have Japanese language classes in here, you know, we have all sorts. And then downstairs in the theatre, you know, we can hire that out whenever we're not putting on our own shows and we have a fully licensed bar that we run ourselves. So we make money from the bar. So having all those different income streams gives you a freedom and a flexibility, but it's also so much work. Yeah. And obviously, quite naively, no one ever quite understood how much work it would be. And when we opened the place, we were doing everything. There was four of us, as I said, and we were, you know, organising the events, putting on the shows, performing in a lot of the shows, um, but also working the bar, cleaning the toilets, making up the floats, doing the banking, sending the invoices, like... Wow. It was, and, and then there's also the stuff of building an organisation that is a whole job in and of itself. Yeah. Just, you know, writing your company policy and how are you going to treat each other as staff members now that you're more than just friends and you have this legal obligation towards each other. It's been an incredible couple of years of, of learning how to do that and I would not say that we know how to do it yet. Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, you always say, we're like, oh, we might, we might be ready to open an improv theatre any day now, <laughs> but we've had one for two years. Yeah, so it's an amazing place. Mm. It's really, really lovely. I'm, I'm very impressed. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, we're very proud of it. Uh, there is a great feeling. I think because we're so used to, and everyone in the UK is so used to doing improv in rooms above pubs, yeah. when, when you take someone downstairs and open the door to the theatre and they see 115 seats in a full theatrical lighting rig, and they go, oh, and you're like, yes, <laughs> that's it. That's always the feeling. And you've got to never forget that. Yes. It, you, it's too easy to get used to it. Yes, yes. Yeah. Never take that for granted. I mean, when I walked into the bar, I thought, oh, where's, where's the stage mm. then? And I thought, because there is a little bit of a stage where there's yeah. a piano. I thought, oh, that's where they're going to be forming. This is lovely. I'm really impressed with what they've done here. And then I found out that there was a whole actual stage, uh, the whole yeah. room next door, and I'm like, oh, wow, now this really is impressive. Yeah. I was impressed before, but now I'm really impressed. Yeah, the bar, I love the bar space. It's um, So we have a corner stage in there, like you said, it's like, I think it's three metres squared, just in the corner of the room. And I'm like, that's normal stage size, that's like, yeah, you know. Genuinely. Yeah, and we, so the students do a fortnightly show in there, um, that's a nice little legacy thing. I started doing improv in the Bristol University Improv Society. And when I was uh, in my second or third year, I ran our fortnightly improv show, oh, yeah. which used to be at a pub just around the corner from here. Um, and that pub stopped doing it uh, at a certain time. And so the students were without home and we were able to say, oh, come, come and do it at the bit. And now wow. that show that I used to run is, is here and happens every fortnight. Oh, that's lovely. lovely. In yeah. the bar, yeah. Yeah. And we also use it for stuff like open mic nights and scratch nights, you know, anything where you want a sort of slightly more intimate cabaret feel. Right, okay. Works really well in there. Okay, so I feel slightly less bad about identifying that no, as no, the stage. No, no, everyone does that. It's yeah. the best, yeah, the only thing that's better um, than showing someone into the theatre and them saying, ooh, is someone thinking that the bar is the theatre and then getting to show them the actual theatre. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so is there any advice you'd give to anybody that was hoping to follow in your footsteps in, you know, create their own improv theatre? Oh Christ, I'd have absolutely no idea where to start. <laughs> no, right, fair enough. I think make sure that it is what you want to do because we have learned that it creates much more work than, um, well like I said, you do a lot more than just... Hmm than just directing improv shows and doing improv shows, which I think is, is something that's easy to overlook. Um, it is the most rewarding thing when you see the community that's built around it, people who've taken your classes, people who've had a good time there. Um, but yeah, it's it's an absolute sh shit ton of work. <laughs> yes. 
Uh, advice. Sorry, I'm stalling. No, it's interesting. I mean, mm. but I'm very. I'm interested. I'm always interested in the admin of improv groups, and I'm interested in kind of the theatre management mm. because it's not glamorous, but these the, these things need to happen. Otherwise, you yeah. can't have you know the improv. Yeah. Um, you know. I would say probably start small. Be patient. Is um, be patient but ambitious. Right. And don't apologise. Like, I, I always think, you know, everyone's met that person and been like, wow, that could really fucking love improv. <laughs> everyone's been that weird kid at some point. Andy has this amazing story about um, speaking to Tom Morris, who's the artistic director of the Bristol Vic, who actually gave us our first show as sort of acknowledging there being a Bristol improv network. Wow. Which is, I can't remember if that came before the first festival it might have done um the bristol improv jam used to happen annually at the bristol Ovic and doesn't anymore we performed at the last one um and it was you know an improv festival it must have been before we did are you on yeah um and they uh andy approached tom morris and said you don't have any bristol acts you know would you like some bristol acts and so they said yeah fine you can have a night at the studio theater if you want and it was the bristol improv society mashed up with Only Humour, who were some graduates of Bristol Improv, who later became Degrees of Error, and Closer Each Day, who do the, I think it's now the longest running narrative show in the world. It might be, I, maybe there's one in Australia. Anyway, at the Wardrobe Theatre, they do an improvised soap opera that's been going for eight, ten years now, a very long time. I have a question about them, which I should probably ask off mic for fear of looking stupid. Is it an one on long, ongoing story? Yeah, they Is all have really? the same characters. Some wow. people have died off when yeah. they've gone off to like drama school and come back three years later as their character's wow. niece and stuff like that. Because I'd heard that, but I sort of thought, well, that's it can't be. You can't go and to see one act and see one long continuous kind of story. Mm. Um, but wow, that's amazing. Yeah, I mean, it's obviously storylines. It's like right. a soap. Yeah, 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 yeah. Like soap. But they're the same characters throughout. Yeah, they've been playing that's the same amazing. characters since for the last 10 years. It's amazing. So, yeah, so Andy got in touch with Tom Morris and said, you should have a Bristol act on. And he said, oh, you call it, you know, yeah, have, have a couple of Bristol acts, do a show together. You can call it the Bristol Improv Network or something. I'm sure you'll think of something better. And so for the first year, we were the Bristol Improv Network with that very unfortunate acronym. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and did a show at the Bristol Old Vic, which was huge. I yeah. think I was like 18. We couldn't believe our luck. It was nuts. Yeah. And then, and it went really well. I think we, we were students and we did short form and then um, close to each day they did uh, a sitcom format that they have that they can whack out when they're not doing the soap. Um, and afterwards, Andy had this, you know, had this conversation with Tom Morris in the bar afterwards. So he basically just sort of ranted at him over and over and just was talking to him until eventually Tom Morris was like, that's great calm down <laughs> and walked off and Andy was like I'll calm down I'll start a fucking improv theatre and to, to have been that like I think um, to have been that nerdy obsessive we've all been that weird kid who really loves improv that's your most powerful asset if you're really into it and you're ambitious yeah. but you're also ambitious enough to kind of take your time and put a lot of work in most of, most of it unpaid we only started paying ourselves when we opened um, when we uh, two years ago when we took over the theatre yeah. and it became, you know, a full-time job. But we were working other jobs for the four years that we were trying to make it happen before then, so. Wow, that's amazing. So you're artistic director? Yes. What does that mean? Mm. What, what, do, what do you do? What a great question. <laughs> <laughs> when people say, what a great question, I'm never quite sure how serious they are <laughs> or whether they're just buying for time. I think it's a question that I ask myself all the time. What does it mean to be an artistic director? So we... Um, first, I, oh, God. Sorry. My hungover brain is hoping that you'll edit out these really long pauses where I just sit and think. <laughs> well, I've just been doing a, um, I'll fill. Uh, so I've been doing um, uh, Maria Peters and Vivian's uh, workshop on um, slowing down scenes and uh, mm. inserting silences into your scenes. <laughs> and uh, some long silences into this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> so day to day, my job is, thank you by the way, um, obviously I was listening rather than planning because That's I'm an improviser, but... Um, <laughs> Day to day, it's my job to um, put on the shows and classes of the theatre. So we have recurring shows with associate directors that 
go on monthly and then we also welcome visiting acts and put together nights so like the international women's day special and we have nights where we showcase local acts as well and that makes up our program so we have a friday night show every week and a couple of other things here and there so like scratch nights on a thursday and like alternative um stand-up nights and stuff like that and the students do their night on every other sunday uh, and then I also manage the theatre school, um, so our classes and who's instructing them and, and when. And that job, up until recently, we called programmes director because it was more about taking the, uh, you know, the shows and the classes we had and filling them into slots. Right. It's only recently that we've... Because um, I was also managing external hires for quite a long time. The, you know, the, it's, it's so far from glamorous <laughs> that we give ourselves these big titles. But first and foremost, you, we were just a, a handful of mates trying to do this thing. And the titles were just a way of being like, OK, you do that and I'll never ask you about it ever again. <laughs> OK, you do that and that's your job, that's your responsibility. Because obviously the first year that we did this, we made every decision by just sitting around a table and arguing about everything for hours. Right, yeah. Which is not an efficient way to work. Absolutely not. You know, um, Necessity being the mother of invention, we invented ourselves a load of a load of job titles. Um, but only recently we've started calling it artistic director because it's more about um, producing uh, new work and looking at what we want to be creating here long term. And as I said earlier, with the challenges of setting up a theatre and doing the jobs that need to be done, and fundamentally for the first eighteen months, the priority was always just keeping the doors open because yeah. we had no idea if we were going to make enough money to be able to stay here. Yeah. I mean, any future investors <laughs> listening, <laughs> of course we always knew, but you know, it was, it was such a risky mm. thing that we were, and we just took a punt that enough people would want to do improv and see improv in Bristol that we could, we could get away with it. Yeah. Um, we've been right so far, but um, so much of what we've done has just been about, uh, yeah, keeping the doors open and keeping this thing going so it has a, a legacy and a life. And, and it's only recently we've had more freedom to actually do more stuff that we really want to do. Yeah, yeah, you need to get the, yeah, you need to make sure it carries on running before you can, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think it's interesting because this was something I was going to mention earlier, but um, some a big challenge or something that we observed very early on was how quickly it be- it felt like an institution and became an institution. It had gone from being like, oh, those are those four people who are really into improv, <laughs> to that's the Bristol Improv Theatre. And yeah. having a building and a permanent home, um, I think made it look like we had a lot more resources than we did. And so suddenly I would be having these conversations where people would be like, the Bristol Improv Theatre really needs to dot, dot, dot. And I'd be like, you know, it's me, right? <laughs> you, know, <laughs> you know, it's just me and all these other people you know. And, yes. and we, we don't have any more time or money than we ever have. Um, but yeah, I think people expect so much of you when you have this amazing resource. And yes. that's a brilliant thing, but it can also be a bit of a curse because um, it's very easy to not see how much work goes into just just keeping the thing running. Yeah. Um, but also people having high expectations of you is brilliant because it holds you to account. And it makes you do good things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So um, Bristol Improv Theatre offers classes. That's right. So what could, if someone came to learn improv here, what could they learn? Is there a, is there a Bristol Improv Theatre style? Oh, that's such a good question. That's another thing that we're figuring out, I think. I mean, obviously, geographically. Yes, there obviously is. <laughs> I, there obviously is, but I don't know if I could put my finger on what it is. Those of us who founded the theatre are really interested in narrative improv. Oh, right. And our background is narrative and genre improv. And so I think what we're particularly keen on is um, improv that focuses on character and story. Right. And our classes reflect that. But also, we have a there's a wonderful culture and atmosphere in Bristol. It keeps on getting like named in polls and magazines for being like the happiest city the kindest city the most playful city the best city <laughs> and it's all of those things and everybody should move to Bristol <laughs> oh you've sold me <laughs> yeah exactly um, but our so our first discovering improv course our six week improv course that you can take it which is like level zero um, is not about performing at all it's just about um, about spontaneity and play and and discovery and working in a team and so in, it takes the skills of improv, like listening and acceptance and, um, and creativity, uh, 
trying to um, work with your internal sensor to let things come out. Um, and so it's confidence, creativity, building, boosting course, but it's not about really putting improv on stage. Interesting. And it's wonderful. It creates such lovely, empowered, free, playful improvisers. That I think it's, it's a big part of why we have such a wonderful community here, that that's how most of them met through doing a Discovery Improv course. And the way that people bond over those sessions is just yeah. like, we've got one marriage really? from Discovery wow. Improv. Yeah. That's yeah. A, lovely when you have to get a hat. Oh. Get a new hat for. Uh... Oh, we weren't invited. They yeah. had a small thing, but you know. <laughs> but we've also had weddings at the theatre of people who um, didn't meet through the theatre, but have since come to classes here together. Oh, and, really? Yeah. Well, you can get married at the British. No, you can't oh. get married. But we've had a couple of receptions. receptions okay, yeah. They're joyful affairs. <laughs> one was pirate themed. Really? Yeah. <laughs> Did buy a hat for that one. <laughs> the other was robot, and there was a ninja. Yeah, well. <laughs> very good. In addition to being artistic director at the Bristol Improv Theatre, mm -hmm. you're also a regular performer here. Yes. You're involved in various groups. Please tell me in great detail about the Degrees of Error Theatre Company. The Degrees of Error Theatre Company. So, um, Degrees of Error was formed by Bristol Improv graduates back in 2011, I think. Or maybe even early 2010. That's not interesting. I believe if you just state it confidently. Yeah. <laughs> at some point, quite a long time ago. And first I heard of it was when it was, it was only humour and I was in Bristol Improv Sock and uh, they were flyering, which was one of, the, um, one of the early arguments at the student uh, comedy fortnightly gig. And I went, oh, there's an improv group that you can't just be in and they do their own shows and aren't the Improv Society. Well, I want to be in that. And so I just went to all of their gigs every week oh, <laughs> for, wow. for then until the end of time until they asked me to be in the show. And so back then we did a first half of short form and a second half of a, a narrative. And it was genuinely blind leading the blind. We made up some terrible, terrible stuff, you know. <laughs> really? Well, it, yeah, it was at this wonderful, like, interesting, like, pre-improv era in Bristol where... You could, we just did a free show every week at a pub and we'd get like a handful of people coming and we literally learned how to improvise on stage from wow. doing it all the time. Yeah. Uh, and when I joined, there was this feeling that, um, uh, I think because we'd seen, Andy had seen Parallelogram and Phonograph, if you know them, the Texas troupe who run, well, some of them run the Hideout Theatre in Austin. And he'd seen them at the Edinburgh Fringe and was so inspired by what they did, these uh, improvised genre narratives was just determined to do that. That was what we were going to do. And so we uh, worked more on an hour-long improvised narrative format and then we decided to try and do a genre show because it was those sort of heady days where Ostentatious was still at a free oh, fringe yeah, venue yeah. at the at the Edinburgh Fringe and, you know, Showstopper were back, back when they were in like a 300-seater in the Gilded Balloon before it all exploded. <laughs> and we said, you know, that's our train. We want to get on that one. And we started doing an improvised murder mystery called Murder, She Didn't Write, uh -huh. uh, which is our flagship show to this day and we have now taken it to six fringes and we do the Leicester Square Theatre once a month um, and yeah and tour around the UK with it it's a joy wow fantastic so talk me through the format of that show it's a bit like so a review has described it as live action Cluedo but we obviously wouldn't describe it as that because we'd have to give 10 grand to Hasbro Games <laughs> so uh, all characters have colours uh. and uh, a detective kind of compares and oversees the whole thing from the side of the stage. Right. The characters are formed from the audience suggestions of why all the characters are gathered together and an object with an adjective, which becomes the case name. So the case of the crystal doorknob or the case of the broken walking stick, something like nice. that. Nice, yep. Um, we make up our characters on stage, on the spot, and once all the characters have been introduced, the uh, detective asks someone in the audience to pick a card out of a deck of coloured cards and the colour that's chosen is going to be the victim. Right. And we now have a two-act format, so this varies slightly, but at some point also the murderer is chosen. And then the rest of the um, uh, show is uh, this really fun, farcical, crazy romp through the location looking for the murderer and looking for clues and accusing each other and having flashbacks with the murder victim to expose all these different people's motives as you suddenly realise that any of them could have done it. And then it's the detective's job who's sitting off stage with a notebook trying to make sense of the whole thing uh, to draw the whole thing together at the end and show why only one person could have done it. Ah, right. That sounds really hard. 
It was six years ago, but it's not anymore. <laughs> it's really fun. And also the show's been through so many iterations. We've done it without the detective, with the detective, without even having a victim in the first iteration. <laughs> right. Without having a victim, because in the first iteration of the show, none of us wanted to be the victim, because that would mean we wouldn't be able to be in it. Yes. And so you just have all the characters arrive, and then someone would be like, I'll just go and get John. would go off and be like, ah, John's dead. And so we'd never meet the person that the whole story was about. <laughs> so the show went through a lot of changes to to become the format that it is has been for about the last three years now. Yes, because I was worried about that because I've spent all this time creating this character of John and now I'm not in it unless yeah. somebody did a flashback scene and then I might be in it. So there's lots of flashbacks. All oh, right, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so yeah, because that's presumably useful to find out the motive or mm. the, the sort of the build up to it. Well, it's interesting because murder mystery. We chose because it's such a fun genre, it's such a visually arresting genre. We love doing stuff set in the past because all of the language and the, you know, and the tropes are so juicy. It's such a great world to play in. But murder mystery is fundamentally like a bad uh, genre for improv. Yes. All of the improv rules, show, don't tell, don't talk about people who aren't there, are just, just don't work in murder mystery. Murder mysteries in, in their kind of very archetypal form are about something happening over one night that draws together years and years of history. Yes. And so, you know, and having one omniscient character who seems to be able to, like, go in and solve everything, fix everything, it's very hard when you're all making it up at the same time. <laughs> and so it was a, it's a, a really interesting exercise in how to format this show to make a virtue of those things rather than have them hold you back. Like, we had, um, you know, this... I mean, I don't like improv rules... But it's a good improv guideline to not ask too many questions and offer information. Yeah, yeah. And when we were first workshopping the idea of the show, trying to do interrogation scenes where no one asks any questions. <laughs> but of course, you know, people are withholding stuff, but, but you should just be nice and obvious in improv scenes. And so, yeah, all of this stuff took us ages to iron out and work on. But it's, um, the show as it exists now works yeah, fantastically. But we made all the mistakes in the book very early on. So this... The whole scene where someone interrogates someone else and they just won't tell them anything because that's not what their character would do. Oh, right, because I was imagining these um, improv interrogation scenes where someone's doing the interrogating and instead of saying, you know, why, why did you, you know, why were you at the mansion on... We'd made the fourth or whatever. And instead of asking the question, they've retained, they've changed it and made it a statement. Yeah. And this doesn't work. Yes. And <laughs> no. And so it's very counter in some ways to improvising, but I think the the ways that we found of adapting it and putting it into an improv format are really fun. <laughs> yeah. So so making the um, making the motives come out in flashbacks, yes. so you actually see something happened with the victim rather than just have someone talk about it is a good example of that. Yes, well, that sounds fantastic. Nice. And um, so it's regularly once a month in London, people see Yeah, it. at the Leicester Square Theatre, cool. usually the third Sunday of the month. Cool. And Edinburgh? Yeah, we're, um, we're at the Pleasance this year. I th- I'm not sure about mm. our slot yet, sorry. Yeah, it's all right. Look it up on the internet, that's why yes. I've got the internet. we'll be there. It's like, oh, well, I would have gone, but I didn't have every detail on the podcast. Mm. I was unable to find out any other information in the other way. Cool, that sounds fantastic. And you're also involved in This Is Your Musical? Yes, that's one of the Bristol Improv Theatre's flagship monthly shows, uh, directed by Andy Yeo. Um, and it's a yeah an hour-long improvised musical with a second half of cabaret songs, which right. is, yeah, great fun. Explain to me what that means. Um, what, the second half? Oh, well... All of it, but yeah. Oh, just, all of uh, it. Okay. Well, I actually meant so. I'm sort of broadly aware of cabaret. I know the film and another musical. But... Oh right, okay. Um, I, just so if if the first half is a narrative, an improvised narrative with songs, a musical. Um, the second half, the idea is that we see songs from uh, other musicals that we could have seen. Ah, so the first really half, nice. we interview someone in the audience and get a story from their week, something really small like my dishwasher didn't get delivered or. Um, I saw a seagull eating um, an omelette. I think was one we had recently. <laughs> and we have a, you know, we have a chat with that audience member and kind of take a, a message or an idea from it, and uh, and then get the audience to suggest a title. And right. then we do a show that's based on 
on that story ah, in some way, inspired by that story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and then in the second half, because we're all such musical theatre nerds, it's our our turn to um, just play with lots of different smaller stories. So we keep getting stories from the audience. But then, do you know the kind of idea of how um, musical theatre songs uh, break down? So your first musical theatre song is very often like, this is the world and here we all are, the big welcome song. And then you usually have protagonists singing an I want song where they talk about you know what their real drive is. There's usually a villain song. Sometimes you get a charm song, which in Disney is usually like animal companions giving you bad advice that you eventually don't take. And, stuff right. like that. and a love song that usually uses a metaphor in some kind of tortured way. And so we, uh, yeah, take different suggestions from the audience and then see different uh, songs from musicals. Like, we're going to have a love song based on that story or we're going to have a villain song based on that story. Oh, that sounds so, lovely. That yeah. sounds really good. It's a lot of fun. What's your favourite uh, genre or style of song from that list to sing? Probably love songs. I yeah. love doing love songs so much. <laughs> the way we do that one, we take a story from the audience about how a couple first met and then sing a song based on that, and you find some metaphor within, um, you know, one of their jobs or something that they noticed about each other. Yeah. I just love love songs so much. <laughs> yeah. And it's really nice to um, take a story from the audience and then sing back to them about their lives. Yeah. And it's much nicer than the stereotypical stand-up thing where, you know, people get hassled and everything. Yeah. But it's like, oh, my life has somehow been made into art, and yeah. it's been made even more beautiful by having a yeah. song sung so it's yeah and it, that it's about honoring the suggestion rather than making fun of the suggestion i yeah. think is crucial mm. yeah yeah oh, that sounds great and you're also involved in adventures of the improvised sherlock holmes yeah that's right tell me about that i got invited i so i'd seen the show a couple of times at the edinburgh fringe and just loved it um, it's a bonkers show. There's this big rolling cast of improvisers, mostly from Oxford and London. And I'd always been a big fan of Racing Minds, and there's a lot of members of Racing Minds in there. And so I'd seen the show and, and always loved it. And uh, just suddenly got invited to do it out of, out of absolutely nowhere, which was fantastic. I'd met the director a couple of times, and he'd come and done a show at the bit once, and I sort of said, oh, I love Sherlock, I love your style, it's really cool. And then they were offered uh, a really odd run in Warsaw performing to Polish school kids for a week. <laughs> so twice a day you're going to perform to 300 Polish school kids who won't understand a word you're saying. Uh, and uh, the only person who was available to do it was Tom Wilkinson, the director. And so he, out of this huge rolling cast, because so many of them live abroad now, um, and so he uh, subbed in me and another person at Archie Cornish from the Oxford Imps and we went up and did this show in Warsaw and off the back of that I started doing, uh, I did the Edinburgh Fringe with them and have just got back from doing Perth and Adelaide Fringes Wow. With them. So yeah, I really lucked out there. Yeah, yeah, that's amazing. What were the audiences like in Australia? Great, so up for it. Yeah, I yeah. think, I don't know, um, I didn't know what to expect because I've never been... Uh, I've never been to Australia. I've never been to an English-speaking foreign country. I've I've not really travelled much at all. Um, You've been too busy setting up an improv theatre. Yeah, that seems like a good use of your time. It does make <laughs> you put other stuff off a little bit. Yeah, um, uh, but I think there's something about fringe audiences are just kind of the same the world over. Yeah. So I'd like to cast your mind back. What inspired you to get involved in improv in the first place? What's your improv origin story. Improv origin story. Were you bitten by a radioactive... Improviser. Yes. Yes. <laughs> it's happened to us all. To this day. That's how, that's how we get involved. Curse him. Um, <laughs> I, so I did, I did drama A-level. I'm not one of these people who got into performing because um, to overcome crippling shyness, I've always been a horrible show-off. It's <laughs> always been about managing and channeling my overwhelming obnoxiousness. <laughs> so <laughs> Own it. <laughs> yeah, thank you. I do my best. Um, otherwise, everybody else has to. <laughs> Um, so I knew that I wanted to do some kind of performance at university, um, but I had not enjoyed my drama A-level at all, sadly, because um, I had quite an overbearing teacher who was very controlling and directed in a very authoritarian style um, and was very into casting you. So once he went around the whole class and did uh, this thing where he'd be like, Caitlin, you're a Stella. Sinead? you are a Blanche. <laughs> Tell everyone whether they play Stella or Blanche. And once he went around the whole class and told us whether or not we were 
um, dramatic or comedic actresses and told me that I was a dramatic actress and I shouldn't do comedy. And obviously, I was, you know, 17 at the time and furious. Wow. And so I came to university pretty much determined to do comedy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, went around all of the different societies and just got a real sense that, um, as is often the way with university societies, they felt quite, quite cliquey. And there was a real sense that it was like, yes, you can do a show um, if you do, you know, if you... Uh, like help out backstage for two years or if you're in the chorus for two years and and then I went and saw Improv Sock and as is the case with Improvisers the World Over they were just the friendliest bunch they were so nice so funny so chilled out and they said well we do a show once every fortnight and you can be in it whenever you want wow and I was like okay brilliant well sold (laughs) and so I went along and um, just completely fell in love with it and immediately did it a lot more than my degree, <laughs> as is often the case. And um, and it was through that that I met all the people in Only Humour that then became Degrees of Error. It was three of us from Degrees of Error who then founded the Bristol Improv Theatre and the rest is, you know. Fantastic. But yeah, I got into it because I really, I wanted to make people laugh. I wanted to have fun. Um, and I wanted to, I mean, ironically enough, I wanted more control because I found drama so disempowering in how we had been managed and taught and directed that the idea of being able to get on stage and do what I want (laughs) (laughs) was very attractive. And obviously you learn it's not just about that. But I don't think I ever get over that sense of like glee that you can go on stage and just say whatever you want (laughs) and cast yourself as anything after all these years of being cast... To be able to go and be like, no, actually, I'm an assassin. Yes. Slash king, slash mobster, slash, you know. Yes. Tiger. Yes. <laughs> Whatever. I, I will never be cast as a jet in West Side Story, but I can cast myself as that. Exactly. <laughs> if I'm doing improv. Yeah. So, yeah, that's a really, I really love that about improv, is the fact that, yeah, you can play against, you know, mm. you can be a Stella, or you can be Blanche, or you can be both. Exactly. Or neither. Yeah, totally. That's, a, that's what I've always loved about it. That's a really cruel... My face was long with shock. It was. While you were mentioning that. That came Horrified. across, that came across <laughs> badly on the audio format. I realised <laughs> that. So, uh. If there was a sound for the face that Stuart was doing, it was this... I'm shocked and appalled and angered. Yeah, so was I. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Fair enough. I was angry just hearing about it, but you had to go through it, so that's... Uh, mm-hmm. Took us good places though, didn't we? We got there in the end. So, what is your signature move? What's the <laughs> classic thing that you do? Saves the day, brings down the house, and everyone goes, Classic Campbell. Classic Campbell, my God. I don't think I do have one. I probably have characters that I come back to quite a lot, and characters that I feel really comfortable and enjoy playing. In um, uh, we do a twenty-six hour improv marathon. Tell me about that. Uh, and well, uh, it's been. Tell me about your characters. I've only did the last one um, that I was actually in it the year before I event managed the whole thing. Oh, right. So wow. I was event managing it for thirty hours instead of being in it. Which was fun in its own way. I did get a small appearance where I came on with a ladder and fixed the set halfway through the kids' episode <laughs> while, while a wonderful improvisers on stage sang the song Caitlin the Theatre Fairy to cover that. Oh, <laughs> that's beautiful. But yeah, so last year was the first year I did it and I knew that I would be happy for 26 hours if I could play the put-upon but positive and happy assistant of one of my best friends, Stephen Clements, who's also one of the founders of the theatre. And the theme was pirates. And so I pitched to him that he would be playing a travelling naturalist, like a pre-Darwin-esque figure, who's travelling around with pirates or with other people who are... You know, I think we ended up with a cartographer for a while. Um, And, uh, you know, travelling around, discovering new species of animals. And I would be playing his assistant. And so I was, like, laden with bags. I managed to find four satchels and some binocular bags and stuff like that. (laughs) And was just following him around everywhere, being charming and taking shit, really. And the and because there's a, I don't know there's this thing with marathons that um people pick pun names oh, yeah. really good pun names and so um Stephen was playing Dr John Etics Dr Genetics and I can never think of puns so I was Angela Lizard 
and I loved playing Angela Lizard so much. I had such a good time with her. She was so nice. She was so positive. She was always so happy. And, you know, she really deserved all the good things that happened to her <laughs> in that 26 hours. That when we um, announced the marathon this year and decided we were going to do it in a TV studio, just the temptation to be like Angela Camera or someone like that <laughs> was so overwhelming. But, yeah, trying to push myself to do something else. But, like, I love to play a low-status low character who can absorb the ill will of other characters oh, yeah, yeah. And, um, and be bright and positive. Yes. That's a really lovely choice. Thanks. Yeah. Yeah. So, and what? How do you cope with the lack of sleep? Because I, I love improv, but I love sleep more. Yeah. So I, you know, people obviously should do improv marathons if they want to. I'm not saying they shouldn't, um, but equally, I'm like, that's a lot of no sleep. It's great. I mean, the theory behind it, which I'm sure has been talked about on this before I blame Ken Campbell yes exactly but is that it, um, it, uh, not getting enough sleep will peel back your kind of uh, improv uh, sensor and just leave your lizard brain and you make more interesting and bold choices and it's totally true like there's the first few episodes where everyone's in good health and <laughs> feeling great <laughs> feeling great then you get to about 2am and everyone's starting to feel a bit ropey that's when we do the musical episode and then you get through the night and that's commonly called the gates of hell <laughs> that's where things get really dark and really weird people just get really tired and just that's when if anyone's going to drop out or have a horrible time that's when it can happen and that's when everyone like everyone needs to look after each other yeah. and support each other and then at 10 a.m. you have we have a kids episode. That's like the palate cleanser. That's when everyone needs to stop being dark yeah. and you sort of reset the timeline. So the story as we do it is told in three chapters of about six to eight hours each. And so after each chapter, you can just reset and say two weeks later or ten years later. Uh, you know? yeah, yeah. So the storylines can have a bit of a break. There are narratives that can run through the whole 26 hours but you can also drop things after six to eight hours. <laughs> but then that final stretch from midday to 10 p.m. On the, on the second day is just so interesting because everyone has got through being tired and is working on something slightly different where there's just less energy to spend on second-guessing yourself yeah. or being scared. Yeah. And it's delightful. Like, everybody... I mean, obviously, some absolute shit comes out as well, but... In that home stretch at the end, there's um, like knowing how often to return to a joke and how long you can tell a joke for. Yeah. Just a real sort of settling in of, because I think with improv, most of our shows are an hour long. Yeah. We're often so desperately like tripping over ourselves to get out information or find, find what the show is about and then tell the, tell the story that to just have all this time to really settle into what's fun, what's funny and really explore a character is such a treat and yeah. yeah doing that in your slightly broken down state I had a little preview of it when I came back from Australia on Wednesday night and it was about a 30 hour journey because we had a really long stopover in Hong Kong and I had barely slept on any of the flights because I now know I can't sleep on long haul flights and so I got to Bristol at about 7pm I went to bed at half nine being like this is great I'm going to bed at a decent time but then I woke up in the early hours and just had all these weird, like, waking, dozing dreams where oh. I felt like I shouldn't be asleep, but kind of was, yeah. and, you know. And then I had a show on the Thursday night, did This Is Your Musical. And I don't remember a lot of it, but apparently I was, like, wild-eyed throughout. And it was very fun. Like, it was a very funny show. <laughs> Everyone took very good care of me in the past. <laughs> but I just, I just did not have a filter. And so some of the stuff that was coming out was just a bit bonkers but my rhyming was so much better like I did really? a, yeah I did a song in the second scene which was kind of like kind of like an I want song it was this dance teacher singing about what she'd learned from dancing and the things that she would never forget and man it's like one of the best songs I've ever done <laughs> <laughs> and sadly because it was improv it was there and yeah. then it was gone also the most beautiful things are fleeting aren't they and maybe they are beautiful because they are fleeting yeah indeed so I would like to finish by giving you the opportunity to give a rousing uh, message about the role of improv theatres in the community. He that read in, from his notes. That is in no way... Dutifully. In no way prepared. Shoehorned in. It's not prepared, it's just something I've been thinking about a lot recently. Um, I sometimes feel that we don't have enough space to 
um, experiment with improvisation. And I think that's because there are fewer places to perform improv and fewer places to incubate improv. And it's such a young art form in the UK even now with so many different influences, Keith Johnstone and the American schools and all that stuff. Because the Edinburgh Fringe, and I love the Edinburgh Fringe, but I also absolutely fucking hate the Edinburgh Fringe <laughs> because it's so brutal and exhausting and strange and cultish and, you know, too big. Anyway, because the Edinburgh Fringe is the only place at the moment that you will ever get to do your improv show for a month, I think there's this pilgrimage that all improv shows take to the Edinburgh show to right. kind of make their show. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's how we made Murder, She Didn't Write. That's how we got good at it. Like, nothing will teach you a show than doing it every night for a month. But there aren't opportunities for that in improv in the UK. But as a result, I think so much improv that's being made in the UK at the moment is geared towards what will sell at the fringe. Right, yeah, yeah. And that is mostly genre improv because you're selling to a non-improv audience. Yeah. The idea is that you want to say it's improvised X and so if they don't like improv they might like X. Yes. Slowly with a wave of people becoming more aware of improv in the UK you know people um, audiences are taking more risks on improvisers. But I, don't, I think that it really needs spaces like the Nursery Theatre, like Hoopla, like the Bristol Improv Theatre, that are dedicated to putting on improv and building an audience with credibility, like, you know, that are interested in improv and are interested in seeing what's being produced. And we do that by having some big flagship, flagship shows, like our short-form show, The Bish Bosh Bash, which is exactly what you'd expect to see for an improv show you know competitive improv theater sports-esque type thing feels like shooting stars who like his lungs anyway we have the improvised musical everybody can knows what that is just from hearing it but because we have these shows bringing audiences in and getting them interested in improv um, which are so delightful in their own way we have room to put on stuff that's a lot more experimental and is pushing the form yeah, yeah. and i think that's something that isn't being done enough in the UK at the moment because our measure of success is just because we're working so hard to just get to do our shows yeah, yeah, yeah. that we don't have chance to experiment with our shows. And I think it's really crystallised for me in the last year or so that that is what improv theatres need to be doing is giving opportunities to make experimental work and some of it will be absolute shit. <laughs> yes, yes. But some of it will be really brilliant and that's how improv will develop. Yeah, I love genre improv but I think there's more of it than necessarily is being yeah. fueled by genuine love for genre improv and other cool things that could be getting made are getting a bit lost. Yes. And that's no one's, you know, that's no one's fault, but... Oh my God, we can, yeah, we can so do more than um, putting on more genre, genre improv shows or adopting American forms. Yes. Oh yeah. And you see that coming out of places like the nursery, yeah, the hoopla, yeah, yeah. and it's so exciting. And that's what I feel very privileged to be a part of. And that's why the responsibility of running this building and keeping it open is balanced with using it to to push improv, to raise improv as an art form that people can take as seriously so that one day you do see it on, um, on theatre lineups, big commercial theatre lineups, in the same way that you'd see any other piece of devised or scripted work. Brilliant. Yeah, fingers crossed. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for being a guest on the Improv London podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so sorry I was so hungover. That's all right. It's the weekend. Bye. Bye. <laughs> This. That's improv! <laughs> <laughs>